For this week's podcast, I interviewed Dr. Andrew Tresider, who is a GP by background, but he has a variety of interests. And his current interests are in education, clinical work, and then he does some work with the Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group. He's also interested in human factors for well-being and performance. So what I particularly wanted to ask Andrew was how he got interested in self-care and holistic approaches to well-being. And, you know, you don't meet many GPs who are into things like flower essence. This is why I wanted to interview Andrew. And he had some fascinating things to say about how he got curious and how he became a student of life. And he has a very nice way of putting it that life has a curriculum for us. So you are going to listen to me and Andrew chat. And I hope you enjoy it. This podcast may challenge your beliefs about well-being. Hi, we are Rani and Suraj, a husband and wife team, psychiatrists, authors, and well-being coaches. We guide heart-centered entrepreneurs and professionals to their true well-being. We bring our mental health and coaching experience and understanding of Eastern spirituality into our conversations every week. So if you're excited to embrace clarity, fun, and ease in your life, relationships, and business, stay tuned. Welcome to the Listening Into Wellbeing podcast. So, Andrew, welcome. Lovely to see you. Thank you very much, Rani, and thank you for inviting me along. Oh, it's my pleasure. Like I was saying a few minutes ago when we had a chit-chat, last time you interviewed me with uh, Peter, and this is a wonderful opportunity to speak to you again. And I'm definitely going to interview Peter at some point, but today is your turn. (laughs) Andrew, tell me one thing. Like, you are a GP. Uh, Are you still doing some um, clinical work at the moment, or have you mostly retired and doing other things? I've changed my clinical work. So my clinical work is is looking after other doctors for a service that uh, deals with mental health and emotional well-being and and psychological issues. And also, I'm I'm still approved under the uh, Mental Health Act to do mental health act assessments. Uh, my other work is is in Somerset in the southwest of England on uh, helping on commissioning uh, and helping on looking at certain aspects of of, of health and well-being there. Uh, and I have an educational role as well. And I am the honorary medical officer for the West Somerset Railway, which gives me great pride because we've oh, got wow. steam, steam engines that go from Bishop's Lydiard to, to Minehead and back and some heritage diesels as well. And uh, they talk in... in um, in mental health circles about something called men's sheds. That oh, yes. yes, yes. And the West Somerset Railway with 900 odd volunteers, uh, men and women, is a gigantic men's shed. So we can't wait for the end of lockdown to get going again on that. Fantastic. That's a really good initiative, isn't it? It helps a lot of people. Yeah. It's some purpose and enjoyment and it's uh, and uh, working with engineering is it's it's not play. It's It's very serious, but it's fun. Okay. Well, you know, I'm I'm really definitely looking forward to that and also making sure I recommend people to go and check that out when it, you know, when it is um running in in sort of um running fully. So like like you said after the lockdown. So Andrew, one of the reasons why I wanted to interview you is because um of your background. You know, I I generally people think that when you're a GP you you know you are you're a medical professional and then you have a certain way of seeing things i have 
uh, known you for some time because I also worked with the GP health and then, you know, we were colleagues and I remember meeting for supervision. What I got very interested about you is that you're really interested in um, self-care and holistic approaches to well-being. So uh, I just wondered, uh, can you tell me, can you tell me how you got interested in that particular aspect? Even, you know, was it as a GP when you were working as a GP in a clinical setting or is it only since you left? No, thank you, Rani, for asking me. Um, do you know what? Um, I, I was privileged to go to medical school in, in London, to Guy's Hospital, and I was lucky enough to get in for a prelim year because I'd done Greek, Latin and ancient history and economics A-levels. So I, I perhaps came in with a slightly different mindset. Um, and I did the regular medical training and I wanted to be a GP in Somerset. And that's what I've been privileged to do for, for many years. I didn't realise that life had a curriculum for me that it wanted me to learn as well. <laughs> uh, and I suppose as a teenager, the first thing that happened was I'd hurt my back. And our, our very good doctor um, locally had said, I suggest paracetamol, but the chiropractor sorted it out. So I was open to that. Um, and then I went through junior doctor training, practising medicine, uh, completely orthodox to the best of my knowledge. and. When I was doing a very busy job um, in paediatrics, I, I caught mumps from one of the children we were looking after. And having a virus as somebody in your late 20s is very interesting, a virus such as mumps or measles or chickenpox or whatever. It flattens you in a way that it doesn't if you're under 10. Um, mm. And I was quite ill for two or three weeks, and I'm managed to go back to work for one day and then had to go off sick again and I really had about three months off work um, on and off with with fatigue with a post-viral fatigue of, of after months and that set me learning because when I did go back to work um, I started getting headaches mm. and the headaches were very interesting because they were 12 o'clock every day on the days I worked and it took a little while to track that down to the 11 o'clock filter coffee and <laughs> and a friend two things happened rani a friend who was a physiotherapist showed me something called kinesiology which is muscle testing to look for mm. for intolerances and to ask ask the ask the body questions and i read a book by a, a gp and psychiatrist from the 1960s called not all in the mind dr richard mccarnus which was all about food intolerances and i worked out that i had a food intolerance uh, and I worked out that it was coffee, chocolate, cheese, um, and I think there was one other. I stopped those for five years. I was completely headache-free, very interesting. And every time I tried them again for the first year or two, I would have problems. And so what happened to me next was that I went into practice as a GP in Chard in Somerset, and I was interested in interested in the best of orthodox medicine but i had this background of understanding about that osteopathy could help so i learned some manipulative medicine and i was also interested in the fact that foods could affect us in various ways and what happened over the next two or three years was quite fascinating i i saw i, I built up relationships uh with patients and my colleagues and i saw a, a number of patients who essentially had come to educate me although they didn't know that and I didn't know that because they would say things like oh my uncle had acupuncture and got better my auntie had healing I had homeopathy or oh the chiropractor helped me or um, um, craniosacral osteopathy helped me and I found myself 
having one of three options. I could either say rubbish, I don't believe it because I didn't learn about it, or, oh, how very interesting and um, and putting it aside, or I find myself enthusiastically learning about the whole breadth of, of complementary medicine and health over about a three to five year period. And then then somebody very kindly gave me a set of of, of bark flower remedies, which I've started to learn about and I've been using ever since and, and taught about widely. So there was a curriculum to teach me, Andrew, we want you to learn about health um, in the context of being a health professional. And I suppose, Rani, that developed with an interest in, in colleagues' health and my own health um, into personal development and, and looking at the emotional antecedents of well-being for everybody, um, as a lot of good GPs do, um, and um, when we've got time, and realising that stress and being on sympathetic drive, buzzing and being busy is actually endemic and a problem that probably makes everything worse. And if you can look at some foundations of what makes us healthy, um, then that gives us the chance to become well. And I suppose medicine is wonderful, and it's a great privilege to learn to have learnt it. But in one way, we've learnt about car crashes, not how to prevent them. And um, a lot of older approaches and traditional approaches would say, yes, please, let's heal the wound. And modern medicine is very good at healing wounds. But remember, you must also strengthen the person and get the environment right. And that's why for TB in the 1930s, you would be in a sanatorium and put out in the sunshine. Um, we're trying to strengthen the person and get the environment right because we had no anti-tuberculous drugs. Mm. So my philosophy is, yes, to use the best of orthodox medicine, but also we need to get the environment right. We need to strengthen the person. And I've been led on to understand, really, through many people who've helped me uh, and taught me, that we are not just hardware body, blood, bones, pipes and pumps that we learn about at medical school, but we're also a being. And I suppose... a uh, a way of looking at that in shorthand would be to say hardware body, software being. And once you acknowledge that, then you start to want to know about the architecture of the software being, how it can go in and out of tune, what you can use to retune it. And uh, and that gives us a different framework of of looking at health, mm. perhaps a bigger one than than is always taught at medical school just yet. Mm. Thank you, Andrew. I mean, you you threw a lot there and I've uh, scribbled on a few notes as you were talking and I couldn't uh, uh, smile to myself at some of the <laughs> some of the analogies you use including life headache curriculum for you and and one of the things I heard you say is that um, you know we think that uh, when patients come to us it's our job to teach our uh, to teach our patients to educate our patients but actually when we are open we learn such a lot from our patients, don't we? And this You're is what absolutely I right. Yeah. So, so a lot of the medical approaches might might make us think that we're there to to cure people, uh, and of course we do try and help people as much as we can. But the word doctor comes from the Latin, and it means teacher. Uh, and in life, your health professional or your professional is teaching you. But life is a co-creative process. We're all participating, and we're all actors in a fascinating big drama and we're all learning all the time and yeah. the day we stop learning is the day that it's not worth waking up um in a way yeah, yeah <laughs> if we wake up if we wake up each day and uh, i have to say that uh, 
The best thing about waking up each morning is that it's better than all the alternatives. Um, it's another day for learning. <laughs> and what what I heard you say is that the teacher, if if a teacher says, "I've you know I uh, sort of uh, I'm I have learned everything I have learned, and there's no nothing more to learn," then you in a way your knowledge is stale, isn't it? Because you'll have to rely on everything that you have learned. Uh, in the past and so if there's if life has anything new to teach you through your students through other people through your experiences you'll you'll be in a way you'll have blocked it out because you said I've already learned all the lessons life has to teach me and I'm not keen on becoming a student anymore yes exactly no I think we're all we all come to the world as excited willing learners on the planet but sometimes sometimes that gets um it does get a little bit stale for some of us, or we become disillusioned, or we we fall into despair, or, or of course, tragically, mental illness like a severe depression. Uh, and so, I'm very privileged in all the work I've done to have have met many people who have taught me much. I hope to have helped some of them, and I've seen, obviously, a range in primary care from from very severe ph- physical illness to 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 some quite minor illness sometimes. But there's always a message. There's always learning. And in the in the field of mental health, um, I'm particularly interested in in the psychological aspects of what makes people tick and how to help them tick better. But at the other end of the spectrum, if somebody has a psychotic depression or is in a severe uh, schizophrenic crisis or has a manic episode, of course they need um, hospitalisation and they they need appropriate treatment. Mm. But you you said beautifully, didn't you? That you you said something about we have learned how to treat the car crashes, but not necessarily how to prevent it, um, or something like that. So I guess you know what you're saying is that we are when it comes to acute crisis or uh, management of things that are acute, then we do a good job, and uh, we know that uh, in the in, in the NHS uh, that's where we are doing well. You know, in terms of the A&E department, in terms of hospital admission for the people who are extremely poorly all for free uh, but when it comes to treating chronic health conditions and there are you know things that we have to we have to think more holistically and i think now the latest lifestyle medicine approach there's a lot of evidence base building up about the role of sleep the role of um food the uh, the gut health you know gut brain and the sort of uh, uh gut health and the brain health sort of connection um um, about our exercise or activity levels, um, resting and so on, isn't it? So I think there is, it, there is definitely, um, there are definitely people looking to explore um, other other things uh, which might not have a lot of evidence base to make it to ni- nice guidelines. But at the same time, if a lot of people and sort of um, um, evidence is coming up that this is ha- uh, helping people, not harming that, uh, I guess, you know, it's about looking at small projects and gradually looking at sort of bigger studies in order to validate those. I think you're absolutely right, uh, Rani. Some of it is is in NICE guidance, in that NICE guidance for mild to moderate depression talks about exercise and the benefits of that and and, and other things. But you're right, it hasn't made it their mainstream. Um, it's it's very interesting um, what you say and that there are lifestyle aspects and um, that harks back, that goes back to what we were saying about strengthen the person and get the environment right. But the emotional climate for us through our lives, and particularly in small childhood, is, is also very important because 
we're now understanding at a biological level that through a, um, a mechanism called epigenetics, so this isn't the genes that we were born with, these are the modifications that are made to them, the, the, the switching on or the switching off of genes by environmental pressures, not just by having a high blood sugar or by having physical parameters, um, but by emotional parameters and by the stress that we're under and even and people listeners who understand this the science of, of yoga and tai chi and others will understand this that even the way we breathe and many of us hyperventilate and breathe off our carbon dioxide and breathe too fast even the way we breathe if we choose to modulate and to modify our breath and to take up a pattern that entrains our organism, our being onto not just parasympathetic, but takes it even deeper into almost meditative states, then we actually have much more power about over our own health and making things go well. Mm. And perhaps avoiding some aspects of the car crashes that might otherwise affect us mm. um, by taking a proactive approach. Um, having said that, most of us are a bit lazy, and I have to subscribe to being in the, in the, um, in the lazy camp. And most of us, given the alternative of several years of hard work, of discipline practice, of looking after our, our diet and nutrition, of, of, regular exercise of mindfulness of making sure that we sleep very well and we go to bed early and doing all these things given a choice between several years of that or taking a pill most of us would take the pill because we'd like the pill to save the hard work <laughs> it's like a quick fix isn't it it's like well, if i uh, if i if you because um Think about it, because if someone says, for example, you have to go to the gym so many times for several several months, years, and or or you can get something now, uh, of course everyone would go for that that one. I'm not saying anything like any pill like that exists, Andrew. I'm not saying it at all. But you know, if someone came up with something like that. Why not? You know, if it makes sense. I think that's right. Most, most, no. most of us are a little bit lazy. And that's not to, you know, I, I fully applaud all my cardiological, rheumatological and all, all, all my colleagues who, who do do therapeutics with substances wonderfully. And I think that modern medicine has given us some fantastic interventions for, you know, for instance, how rheumatoid arthritis would cripple people many years ago. And that can be helped dramatically and, and many other serious illnesses and some aspects of cancer. But there's a little rhyme that uh, seems to be in most of our minds and it's sort of tucked away and it's sort of, it's nothing about pharmacology. It's nothing about pharmaceuticals. It's all about our attitude of liking to put our agency, our ability to um, control life outside, to give it away and to hope that there's a, a tooth fairy or a, a magic wand that'll sort it. And the, the poem goes something like this, you're well until you're ill then see the doctor for a pill oh i see okay <laughs> and it's, a, it's a little rhyme that many of us sort of we, we sort of have there and unfortunately it's a very seductive um um thought and it's not the full story now 
there is good evidence base for an awful lot of medication for diabetes, for cardiovascular prevention, for, for treatment of, of a whole load of things. But I think that we shouldn't be looking at either or. We should be looking at both and. Let's look at what we can do for ourselves, both individually and as a society, as well as having the best of pharmaceutical and pharmacological approaches. Mm. Andrew, my experience is, I mean, you know, I, I agree that we can't say, you know, let's ignore those. Definitely those are there and that has saved lives for people. But I've also um, noticed that, you know, we can go about life um, in a way, in, in a trance state, say, yes. or, or in a autopilot state, like, you know, we are just doing things and we are just going about we get up in the morning, we go to work, you know, we have breakfast, go to work, come back, go to sleep, next day do it. And, and the, the thing is that what I have, uh, and you're absolutely right about people, you know, about setting goals and then feeling, you know, feeling, oh God, I have done enough and now I just want to chill out and then we sleeping. Yeah. But what I have noticed is that for some people, they have some sort of wake up call. Um, yep. And it might be like, perhaps they reach a tipping point, perhaps they have been, you know, for a long time, they've been stressed, they can't be bothered, and something happens, and it really hits home hard. And, and they don't just think intellectually, like, I need to change my habits, but at a core level, at some level, they realize they just, it's like, they've been sleepwalking life, and suddenly yep. they have a wake up call and say, and, and something, it's not just them verbally expressing them, something in them knows that they can't keep going down that route. And obviously, uh, you know, people might still sleep and then they might take one step forward and two steps backward. But the thing is that once people really see that, um, you know, they, I guess they are more in sync with their true self in a way, or they, you know, they know that there is a deeper purpose to their life, like, you know, rather than just waking up in the morning or going to going um, to work and just um, working for the sake, uh, sake of some money. I think when people are driven by some sort of uh, a purpose, um, and it might not be to you know to be successful or make a difference in the in, in the world, but just to know them or just to um, I guess you know you're saying about being comes to mind when they are not just focus, focusing on the hardwired bodies, but more of the software beings, and they are more, more tuning in. I guess some of the things are easier, and they become more like a lifestyle rather than someone cognitively saying, "I need to change my lifestyle. I need to change my habit," and then you know, slipping back to the bad habits. Does it make sense? Um, totally. I think we are human beings, but we're so often human doings, mm -hmm. and we get entranced by the doing that we lose sight of our purpose. And I think we're at a fascinating time historically because cognitively you know what have we got we have got several billion people who can read and write who can communicate across the planet uh, and who can do some amazing technical things and who have the ability to express themselves and to to achieve things that even two or three generations ago were, were couldn't have been dreamed of dreamt of let alone in the middle ages when literacy was was not very widespread so we've had a lot of progress However, quite a lot of that progress has been in the head mm. and not in the heart. And so our heart, and by that I mean the intuitive heart, not the, not the mechanical pump, uh, our heart, our intuition, the seat of intuition that knows what is right is so often overruled by the head that thinks what is right 
Uh, and so sometimes for us, each of us, to wake us up from that dream or from that uh, illusion, it takes illness, sometimes serious illness or or a tragedy in our personal life before we realise that we need to look again at our core values, at what's important. Um, and yes, of course, it's it's important to um, have, have enough money to be able to put a roof over our heads and to to put food on the table and to provide for our our loved ones but for many people life is quite a struggle and so it's difficult to think further um and coming back to those values and finding out what really matters for us is is so important and then we can start to have realizations that life isn't just a struggle it's an opportunity of lessons um, and whatever the experience we have, we cannot resist the experience. The experience comes our way. We have no choice about many of the experiences that we have. We do have choices about how we react. We can either kick and scream and resist it and, and be frustrated, or we can accept it and say, what's the learning? What's the lesson? And I suppose one of the tragedies of life is to have all the experiences and to, to not get any learning from them. Um, so our, our challenge is to is to be able to listen to that metaphorical heart, to understand it. And, and people like Paolo Huelo in The Alchemist and Khalil Gibran in, in, in The Prophet write very eloquently uh, about, about these, to find our purpose, to, to balance head and heart. Um, and so we can use that wonderful intellect that we've got, mm. um, but we can also use our intuition, which is our sort of our sat-nav. And I remember a professor of medical ethics once uh, I, I met, uh, and his message for me was, Andrew, logic is wonderful, but logic can only inform us. It is intuition that must guide us. Logic unguided will take us most elegantly up one of many blind alleys. But once you use intuition to guide you, it's, it's like using your sat-nav. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. That's that's amazing. Yeah, no, no, totally, totally agree. Um, I wanted to touch on um, something about uh, something that doctors and health professionals face, and, and that's because of your work with the GP Health. I'm thinking, you know, you talked about stress, and I'm thinking stress and burnout, and I'm sure that. Um, when you have worked and I'm you still work as a GP health uh, practitioner, and I'm sure you um, meet up with uh, GPs and, and doctors who um, are extremely stressed and going through burnout. Um, have you ever, have you, have you ever shared about this intuitive heart and about how, um, you know, about a different, different approach to well-being with, with uh, your, with GP colleagues or not? Um, so I learned about this approach really, Rani, over many years with my patients in Chard who who taught this to me. And so if if I have um, patients at the moment, so if I'm in a mental health act assessment, I'll do the very best for my patients there and uh, as an assessment. And sometimes that might involve helping them with distress, with self-regulation. Um, if I'm looking after a, a patient through through practitioner health, I'll do my very best for them. And if they need medical treatment, then that's entirely appropriate. If they need um, CBT or, or other approaches, then that's absolutely appropriate. And there's a good evidence base there. You know, quite a few of the people that I've seen have actually been quite 
I won't say they were well, but they're completely normal people, but they are they have had themselves under a lot of pressure for a long time, and they are the wrong side of the stress performance curve. Now, if any of our listeners want to Google stress performance curve, you can find it there. The, the actual reference is Yerkes Dodson. But uh, um, And when you're the wrong side of the stress performance curve for too long, you become, firstly, you become irritable, but after that, you become exhausted and your mood um, becomes low uh, with the exhaustion. And you may have on 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 the scores we use GAD and PHQ, general anxiety, uh, and 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 um, I forgot what PHQ stands for. Um, but you'll have high high levels of that. It it looks like anxiety and de- depression, but actually, convalescence, time off, and self care cures it. So, if it's been ingrained for too long, it may well need medical treatment. But actually, there's something that we have forgotten in medicine called the lost art of convalescence. The lost art of convalescence. So if you look at any modern medical textbooks and look in the in the in the um in the index, very often the word convalescence is not actually there. Now convalescence means getting better. And if we look at the body as a self-organizing uh, um, self-healing um uh, mammalian body which is what it is it's designed to be we're designed to be healthy we're designed to be well we're designed so that cuts will heal themselves that fractures will unite and and knit again uh, and that other insults and injuries have a self-repair mechanism if there is time and space and encouragement for that to happen it will happen not just with the physical but with many minor psychological imbalances um, and so the beauty of, of for me, particularly working with doctors, is that um, our service has a very high response rate uh, of, of cure, um, uh, and that's before I ever came along. But for me, working with people who are stressed, who may be doctors, but who, who I've worked with many people over the years, just the gentle education and the understanding about Actually, if you're on adrenaline for too long, if you're stressed for too long, these you will become unwell, and these are the likely scenarios that will happen. Sometimes the penny drops, um, to use an old phrase, that the light goes on. Uh, it's a light bulb moment, and um, and people get it. And I'm very privileged to be doing um, quite a bit of education on on health and self-care um, across across the southwest and elsewhere and you know um all a lot of what i'm sharing is common sense but until about five years ago um many health professionals particularly doctors weren't interested and that comes from t- for two reasons uh, and the reasons are these if you ask 100 people in society out in the street how they are, what do they say? What four-letter words starting with F might they say, Rani? How are you today? I'm fine. Absolutely fine. So fearful, insecure, neurotic, and emotionally imbalanced, which is a fair description about, about what's under the surface for most of us. So the primary mechanism of insight is denial. And the secondary mechanism, if you ask 100 doctors, 100 nurses, 100 health professionals, 100 mothers, 100 managers, how they are, they haven't thought about the question. They're too busy thinking about their responsibilities. And so the first D is denial. The second D is displacement. 
And those two Ds lead into distress, despair, disillusionment, uh, exhaustion, maybe divorce, debt. And the three big ones for the medical profession are occupational health illnesses, drink, drugs, and depression. And tragically, um, death as well, because our profession has a, a higher suicide rate than some. And those are all avoidable uh, in that those are all what happens when you've fallen off the cliff because there was no fence there and because there was no signpost two miles back saying, you might like to think about driving the other way. Mm. Uh, so actually, it's a privilege to be a doctor, but as a profession, we're heavily defended against our own health. And yet, if you go flying on a plane, what is the safety message before you take off? Put your own, uh, put your own seatbelts first, and also later on about the mask thing. Put your own oxygen mask first. Own oxygen mask before you help anyone else. Mm. And certainly, I'm sure the pilots need oxygen um, because otherwise the plane won't fly. But here we are, um, many health professionals of many disciplines, many mothers, and and many others who will sacrifice their own health for those they are responsible to for. And so we tend to. We tend to be busy and buzzing. And one of the things that adrenaline does for us is it gives us a, a narrow focus, a target-driven focus, and we lose sight of the bigger picture. Mm. Yeah. And when people understand this, um, actually, it's it can be a light bulb moment, and it's a pathway back to health, because the word doctor does mean teacher. And I think many solutions to many problems in life are educational. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Um, it's like, you know, because we're the helpers, uh, it's like um, we are super human being, but actually even doctors and all the professionals, health, health professionals in particular we're talking about, we are all human beings. And I think there is more and more of a sense now and an acknowledgement than perhaps in the past that sort of, yes, you know, we are human beings, we might have certain roles, but then, you know, we also need to go into self-care and, and, and uh, look after ourselves. Uh, only the other day, I was uh, listening to a conversation, a, a talk in a, in, in a platform, a social media platform, and the title was uh, Bringing the Heart Back into Medicine. And they were all medics and you know, health professionals talking in that room. But what I heard very clearly about, you know, in terms of the solution to stress and burnout is really um, focusing more and bring back the, the, the sort of um, the focus on the heart or the intuitive heart. But not just, you know, thinking about how we can give the best care for our patients, but also how can we take the best care of this body, our, you know, this personal self. I think that was the that was the main message. So thank you for that. Um, let's go on to your passion um, about, um, you know, what you said uh, some time ago about flower essence. And I know that you have been doing it for some time and uh, you teach people and um, you definitely um, seem to be very passionate about that. And for the people who have never heard about it, what is what is flower essence? How can you explain it in a very simple way um, so that lay people can understand? Certainly. Well, um, two things, really. Dr. Bach in the 1930s um, developed his Bach flower remedies, and we call them essences now. And they are information from nature captured in water, preserved in brandy. 
they're not aromatherapy oils. There is no physical substance, we believe, in, in, in a bark flower remedy. It's information. And if that sounds strange, it is strange. If it sounds daft, it, it possibly is daft, except that if you were to show me a round silver disc with a hole in the middle and tell me that there is music on it or beautiful pictures, I would look at this disc and I would look at it from all ways and I would say, no, I can't see an orchestra or a band hiding there. Um, so they are carriers of information uh, and they affect us. But let's just take a step back. Now, we've had some wonderful television programmes recently, David Attenborough on Blue Planet and Perfect Planet, uh, which I know have been popular around the world. And those show us and remind us how the human soul connects to nature, whether it's clouds, whether it's trees, whether it's the sea, whether it's flowers, whether it's landscapes. And we are uplifted and helped to feel calm by those in a way that concrete landscapes and cityscapes don't necessarily do. And whether it's because our neurophysiology uh, was developed in tune over hundreds of thousands of years with the blues and greens of nature and the patterns of, of the savannah and, uh, and, and the forests um, and leaves moving and trees wafting. I don't know, but we respond very deeply to the, the parasympathetic calm that is everywhere in nature, the, 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 the gentleness and, and the patterns that nature allow us. And what flower essences are, are, are specific patterns um, or rather the information from specific flowers that don't just generally make us feel calmer, but rock rose, for instance, helps dissolve terror and helps us feel calm and courageous. Whereas uh, agrimony, agrimony is for uh, a person who's tortured inside, inside, but puts a brave face on it and, Florescences seem to bring us back into balance and bring us back to our true self uh, and bring us back to a place of, of peace and calm and allows our qualities of courage and of love and of kindness and of compassion to blossom even more. Um, it's as though the orchestra has gone out of tune. And when an orchestra or a band, just one instrument goes out of tune, it sounds discordant it sounds cacophonous and it's it's jangly uh, and what essences do what flower essences do is they help retune that jangliness back into smooth and comfortable and 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 very nice to listen to very interesting um and is the rescue remedy a type of flower essence Absolutely. Rescue Remedy was Dr. Bark's creation. It's, it's the first combination that was ever made. It's, it's got five flowers in it. It's got cherry plum, which calms us when we feel as though we're going to lose our mind. Clematis, when we've sort of split off into a dreamy state. Impatiens, when we've become excessively impatient. Star of Bethlehem for shock. Uh, and Rock Rose um, for that terror. And it's, it's the sort of all-purpose one for... Uh, exam nerves for shock for distress uh, to take before a driving test uh, and you can put drops on your tongue or drops on your wrist uh, and rub them together like perfume and that's that's the first one that people come across mm -hmm. but there are a number of other combinations made by by various makers and and people can find out about them on the web or in health food shops or others 
And I, I would certainly say that the easiest way to start is with a combination. And if it's a combination that, that says something like confidence or emotional essence or, or, um, or peace or night or something like that, then it broadly, it's going to help. Um, if I say calm, I do mean calm the emotional states, but the actual physics behind it are the physics of harmony, resonance, and entrainment. So what's happening is a resonant, harmonious pattern, um, a, a simple pattern, is working somehow with facets of our software being, and really I don't know how, um, You know, in the same way as I haven't got a clue how music and different music makes us feel different things, but it does. Um, it seems to entrain an aspect of the human software or the human soul in some some way, shape, or form. And there will be lots of clever scientists who work this out over the years ahead. Um, back to a state of of being better. Mm. I suppose my almost a sales pitch, Rani, for uh, for for looking at fluorescences, but for looking actually at any aspect of health. And we've been talking very widely about health this evening, and it's been such a privilege to do so. It's to say, you don't have to feel unwell to want to feel better. You don't have to wait until the tank's empty uh, to fill it up. And you don't have to wait until you're on overdraft to put some money in the bank. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, how I see it is clearly there are a lot of studies lately published that says talks about the benefit of nature for mental health. And yes. if you're saying that um, this uh, flower essence is information from nature collected and uh, sort of uh, and is a carrier of information, somehow it makes sense as to why it might work. But uh, my question to you is that does it work hundred percent for everyone who tries it, or is there a rule of you know people needing to be open, or it helps in certain conditions more, or anything like that? That's a really good question. So. Um... Certainly, they work on small children uh, and animals. And so I think the thing that we can say about that is that there's no placebo effect with an animal. Um, with an adult who is choosing to take something, uh, there's a placebo effect before you ever take it. And let's say, let's take the remedy holly, which helps dissolve jealousy, envy, revenge, suspicion, and greed. It's the ideal one when you've been, when you've been cheated on or when you've got toddler jealousy or when there's been some pretty hard knocks in life. Before you ever, if if as an adult, you actually choose, I'm going to work on jealousy, before you ever take Holly, you have actually cognitively acknowledged that you wish to accept healing of a stuck state. Um, and so there certainly may be a, a partial placebo effect in, in, in adults, but the effect goes well beyond that. Um, um, so it's quite interesting to see how they work. They do not work for everybody, and they are certainly not for severe mental illness. Um, I think for minor mental disturbance, they can be useful, but I see their real application in the normal person who has gone out of balance and who wants to retune. Uh, and they do not work for everybody. Sometimes people need different modalities, um, but people who respond to nature and who like that often find that the use of a flower essence means that you can actually get the benefit of of that particular flower or tree at a time when you can't go and stand next to it or you can't go and gaze at it because it's not in flower or it's very distant from where you are. 
Mm, true. Or the weather is horrible and you haven't been out uh, walking and so and, and you're very tuned to nature. So and you're feeling a bit rough. So that that might work. I guess, um, you know, you said it's not suitable for people with uh, mental illness, but I guess you're not talking about the contraindication because I know that just because someone has a mental health diagnosis and they are medications, unless you're saying there's a, a specific counter-interaction, uh, counter people might even benefit from something like rescue remedy, for example, because I remember a patient saying they took the rescue remedy and they do have mental health uh, uh, issues, but they said that it really helped them. So I don't think you're talking about contraindications here, are you? Um, no, I, I suppose what I'm saying is that they should never be used in psychosis because there's some you know, stuff going on there. And I, I'm also saying that they should never be used instead of conventional oh, medical sure. approaches. No, I get you. But um, possibly with with the less serious conditions as an adjunct, they may be helpful, obviously, as long as as long as the, the medical opinion agrees and that, that people are actually... Um, taking medication as prescribed okay all right the other thing i wanted to make a comment on about was the placebo effect i don't see placebo effect as necessarily bad because it just um says how how strong the mind is or how you know how the mind can also mind can also help us heal the nocebo effect is the opposite isn't it they're saying this is not going to be useful for me this is going to be stupid or and they take the they say, i'm going to take it only to prove that this flower doesn't work of course it's not going to work but if you you know if you already have a uh, thing about i want to heal i know i love nature and i'm open to trying something like that it might help and what's you know what's wrong with that Absolutely. And they are inexpensive. So nobody's making very much money out of them. It's interesting, actually, here in Britain, um, where we're talking, um, there's a sort of a medical culture that dismisses placebo or, or, or almost looks at it as a nasty, nasty, inconvenient thing. So we can't prescribe a placebo, whereas in Germany and other countries, you can prescribe placebo. Can and you? Placebo, yeah, placebo has a 30% benefit effect. You know, there, there is a positive effect and uh, uh, it, it is quite interesting. So, hey-ho. Yeah, in, in some conditions, there's more than, uh, you know, 30 or 40. But, you know, that's another conversation. But uh, really interesting stuff here. So we are almost uh, coming to an end of this talk. Um, I, just, I just wonder, sort of, um, is there anything else that you think, uh, it's important for people to um, to know about you or something that's really um, a message that you had for them that we haven't had a chance to look at yet. Thank you, Rani. Um, we've talked about a lot of things and thank you very much for asking me along. And we've we've covered many aspects. There's much more about psychology we could talk about. I'm, I'm sure I'd love to hear about you talking about three principles and, and other work <laughs> as well. But um if, if any of our listeners are interested, um, a, quite a lot of the material we've talked about this evening is, is available for free download on the web from a book called Health and Self-Care. Uh, and the website is healthandself.care. And there's, there's a book there available for free download if anybody wants to, to learn more. Um, and I hope that's helpful. Excellent, Andrew. What we'll do is we'll definitely put the link to the book and the website. Did you have one take-home message for anyone? Because you touched on so many different things. You talked about life uh, being a curriculum for you. You talked about how uh, we need to, um, you know, you talked about the information in nature. You talked about um, lots of different things. Is there a take-home message for our listeners from yourself 
Andrew, if there's one thing they could remember or do? I would say if there's one tip I could give, if there was one thing I could say to myself years ago uh, and know it to be true and and work with it, it would be love life. Love life and all it brings us. Uh, and recognise that we we learn more in the tough times than the easy times, but just love life and and love our vehicles, love our bodies, um, love ourselves. And maybe our life's work is to learn to love ourselves. <laughs> oh, beautiful, Andrew. Thank you very much. Uh, if people were to uh, want to find out more about you, uh, is there a particular website you have got or any any materials you would like to share with people? Um, probably the best website is healthandself.care, and that's a, that covers an awful lot of information. There is a there is a website that talks a bit about flower essences, which is Dr. Andrew, drandrew.co.uk, uh, although I have to say I haven't updated it very much recently, so there's a, it's quite historical in some ways. Um, we put it there after a book that we wrote 20 years ago went out of print. I would encourage any listeners who respond to nature to think about whether flower essences might be something they'd like to investigate. But essentially, Rani, it doesn't matter what your path to personal growth is, as long as you find one path that resonates with you and works Absolutely. for you. Wow, that's a true word of wisdom there. So, Andrew, it, it, it was a pleasure. It was a privilege to have this conversation. And I really enjoyed our talk. Thank you so much for coming along. And I hope you come back again sometime. You're very kind. Thank you very much, Rani. Good luck Thank and you. go well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you've enjoyed it, please feel free to share it using the social media buttons on this page. We'd also be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe to Listening Into Wellbeing on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews help us reach and connect with more listeners like yourself. Remember, true well-being is always innate and constant.